Hello, and welcome to the Soundweavers podcast. Soundweavers explores the trials and tribulations of small ensemble musicianship through conversations with leading performers and composers. Today's episode features members of Calypsus Brass. We hope you enjoy. Lovely and wonderful gentlefolk, welcome back to the Soundweavers podcast. I am flying solo yet again today, and I am your hopping host, Dr. Rosanna Moore. And today we have two members of the incredible Calypsus Brass. So who are the Calypsus Brass, I hear you all ask? Well, they were founded in 2021. So uh, that sounds like a pandemic group being put together. And they are a professional chamber ensemble performing new works, recitals, and creating high-level professional recordings for composers, especially composers who may not always uh, have access to recording with professional ensembles. All five members of this ensemble have achieved Doctorate of Musical Arts degrees, which is a really huge deal. Also means that they are the only all-female brass quintet uh, that all have doctorates, which is really awesome. So we have one of the trumpet players and the tuba player from the ensemble. We have Dr. Jacqueline Lankford and Dr. Stephanie Ikaza. So without further ado, thank you so much for joining us this morning. How are you doing? I'm great. How are you, Stephanie? <laughs> <laughs> I'm doing pretty well. I think um, the two of us are probably living in very different temperatures right now because I teach in northern Iowa and Jacqueline teaches in southern Louisiana. You describe yourselves as a recording ensemble. Could you talk a little about what you mean by that? And do you still actively seek out performances? And what do you think the difference is in choosing that wording when writing your biography? Sure, yeah. So um, we are kind of both. We started off as a primarily recording ensemble specifically because we're so spread out across the United States. Like we have Iowa, we have Illinois, we have Louisiana. It's hard for all of us to get together. Um, it's actually our goal, which we are doing quite well with, um, to be playing more together um, as well. So we just did a residency at my university, McNeese State University, where we got to do a bunch of master classes and it recital and we got to share what we do with recordings with the actual you know live audience scene which was fantastic um the other thing is that um because one of our goals is to provide actual recordings for these composers um the recording aspect of it is is very important to us not just because we can't be close together all the time but so that we can provide actual materials that these composers can use to help enhance their careers and move them along and so they can have something special as well yeah so originally it was a recording ensemble because there were no other options, both because of the pandemic and the distance. But now uh, that we've gotten together, we kind of have those two simultaneous tracks 
going at the same time. And essentially the recording part of it is also like making use of the skills that we all had to develop during the pandemic. Um, because even groups that are able to get together a little bit more often, it's still not, um, you know, you still have to have a process in place to, to record. How do you all record when you're far away? Do you just look at the piece and go, okay, the tuba line makes most sense to start off with that or the trumpet line, trombone line. How, how do you actually decide how to do that? So this was something that we all kind of experimented with and that I'm kind of um, in charge of when it comes to recording, setting us all up for things. Um, so we, we decide on the pieces, we discuss it with the composer and that's a whole process in and of itself, which is fantastic. But as soon as we decide on a piece, um, I create a click track. Um, primarily it's easiest um, if I start with the finale file, adding um, a clave line underneath. With the clave sound, it's really easy to hear underneath the music that's going on. It gives us not a perfect, tuning to go along with but it does give us reference so that we know kind of where we're sitting which actually works pretty well um, so we have that we can easily adjust um, how much we want to slow things down or speed things up instant tempo changes it's easy for me to create something that we can follow and be very um, together on and then from there uh, everybody records individually and um, they send me the driest possible recording. I get to hear all of the nitty gritty and everybody's recordings, which is fantastic. <laughs> and um, put it together and make sure everything lines up great and um, then add in the videos. And it's, it's a fun process. Were you planning on forming before the pandemic hit or was this a result of not being able to make music uh, with each other for months and months? It was really fun actually. So um, Lauren, the trombone player, and I actually went to school together at Eastman. Um, and so we, we got to be good friends there and that was fantastic. And um, she's working with the International Women's Brass Conference now and they were doing the mentorship program and Carrie Glosser, the other trumpet player, was like, ooh, I want Jacqueline Langford as my mentor. And I'm like, oh, <laughs> that was so sweet. That's always a good thing. Yes, yes. Oh my gosh, I was so flattered and so excited because she's somebody I look up to. So to hear that was just amazing. And we were talking about things. Lauren and I had talked about wanting to play together more. And Carrie kind of brought up the idea of like a recording ensemble starting a brass quintet, something like that. And the three of us started talking and we were like, let's try it and see what happens. <laughs> so we, we reached out to uh, Jessica Pierce and to Stephanie and um, thank goodness they were on board because they're both phenomenal musicians and it just has continued and I'm so glad it does. I know so many of these things can fall apart so easily but everybody's so into it and so good at what they do. It's just, it's been a phenomenal process. Thank you. 
working together online has resulted in some really fun online content, which we alluded to earlier, including a movie trailer from your recent residency, which I thought was just gosh darn delightful. Were you all doing this type of promotional work before uh, you, uh, for yourselves or for other groups that you were involved with? And how has this changed your attitude towards content creation as classical musicians and as a chamber ensemble? Yeah, I mean, I think we were all kind of doing this to a certain degree in our various um, jobs. Probably Lauren, um, who's the general manager of IWBC, has to do it most like as her job. So she's very good at it. And, um, I know that Jacqueline and I have college studios and Jessica, so like we, we do things online for that. I think we all have like varying abilities in that regard. So, um, as you can tell the, the movie trailer that Jacqueline cut together is showcasing her talents. Whereas I, I feel like if <laughs> we had to rank ourselves in order of like the most able to promote ourselves online, me and Carrie would be like maybe closer to the bottom because we're like older and we're like, all right, I'm figuring this out. Like we're all on Instagram. We're all like on it. But, um, I think that, uh, I think Jacqueline's the one who brought us onto TikTok, Right. So yeah, that part of it, um, I've been having to do it, but I also have to say that, you know, this taking part in this group and kind of seeing the, um, the groundswell that we can create by all five of us, you know, sort of putting things out to all of our own contacts has helped me as a, you know, as a teacher now to sort of like, you know, try to employ some of those same techniques um, with my studio, like social media, things like that. It's a process to really figure out how it works. I spend a lot of time scrolling. Now, I'm not saying I don't enjoy the scrolling part because that is enjoyable. <laughs> kind it's of addictive. Weird. It's yes. very addictive. Very addictive. But I learn so much, like what the trends are. I just made a, a stupid little video of me taking my mouthpiece out of my trumpet doing the Vada Kedavra thing. And it has the most views I've gotten out of any TikToks because I stole it from what everybody else was doing and that's that's kind of what you have to do you have to figure out what the trends are what the trending hashtags are so that you get more um, actual attention from who's seeing what and it's um it's a very academic and pleasure combined endeavor but it's 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 a fun process yeah you're the tiktok like sherpa for us and like yeah i'm always like the one who's like yeah i'll post it but i need help with my captions and my hashtags and, like all that stuff like i'm like uh i'm dragging my feet i'm like i'm a little bit more like i'm just ah, let's go <laughs> how do you envisage your group evolving now that we are moving towards the sort of pre-pandemic style of work of you know traveling and performing <laughs> Yeah, this is super exciting for us. It's something that we are um, we have been talking about quite a bit. We have um, a bunch of master classes coming up, and we're thinking so far in advance that um, February of 2023, we're already looking at. Um, we're trying to get out and play as much as possible. So um, International Women's Brass Conference, we're going to be performing for that. Um, getting together as much as possible for residencies and master classes. And now that we all know each other, we know how to work together. Um, we know how we play. We know how we sound together in person, which was phenomenal. The first time we sat down and uh, the very first thing we played together was um, Katie Shimira's When the Clouds Break. And um, hearing that it sounded exactly the same in person as it did on the recording, I was just like, this is great. <laughs> this is wonderful. So knowing that we have um, all of these resources within ourselves, um, it's just 
I feel like the universe is next for us. Any anything could happen. World domination, basically. Um, but <laughs> um, <laughs> but no, our, <laughs> our biggest issue at this point is actually taking the amount of pieces that we want to record and the amount of things that we want to do and calling it down to a manageable um, schedule. So that's actually a nice place to be. How have you handled the administration within the ensemble in order to secure these collaborations and residencies? I know a lot of you teach at higher education uh, facilities. So has a lot of this comes come through your ties to institutions, through word of mouth, or a combination of all of these things? So it's it's kind of a combination of everything. For the um, McNeese residency, that's actually um, from something that I won, a grant I won. Um, it's called specifically an endowed professorship that McNeese offers. And we were the second installment of a concert series um, that I got funding for called Powerful Women in Music. Um, so I wanted to feature those. The first was uh, Kaylee Neese, who's a trumpet player with the Navy Band in DC. Second installment was us. Third installment is going to be Alexa Tarantino, who plays with Jazz at Lincoln Center. Um, so we're having her in for our last jazz band concert. That's going to be the big um, guest artist for closing out our season. Um, so I kind of took care of the administrative side of things, made sure everything was good to go, set up the master classes for that, and everybody else um, kind of, um, I was like, okay, here's, here's what you're working with. They were in charge of getting here and then it was go time. Yeah, I would say that for each of these projects, um, so for example, we're going to play at Jessica's school next January, so she's a little bit more, has been a little bit more involved in administration with that, Jessica and Carrie have, and then we have hopefully at my university um, something coming up next year. I'm going to be um, leading that one. And Lauren, of course, is in charge of, you know, running IWBC conference. So she's sort of in an administrative position with that. But, um, but generally speaking, it's kind of divided up. Um, like, I think we, we talked about delegating and we had a very beautiful and colored spreadsheet. Um, but I think at the, after that, we sort of like settled into like, um, some of our different roles, um, some of us being better with the social media side of things and others following up on emails with composers, things like that. So um, it has kind of settled um, settled in. I think any of us at any time um, might ask one or the other of us to, to help um, with whatever project we're doing. But yeah, it's, it's basically been um, like different people taking the lead on different projects.
again, we alluded to this at the top of the podcast, but you are the first all-female brass quintet with doctorates. How important is this type of representation within the brass realm? Oh, to me, it's huge. I kind of grew up with uh, a very strong female role model. I got very lucky with that. Um, my mom was a cop. She went through the academy at 40 years old and was told by so many people, you can't do this. You're not going to make it. She was even told by my dad, you don't try it. You're not going to make it. And I'm like, okay. And that's, that's some of the same kind of backlash that I've gotten um, as a trumpet player. And even going from my doctorate, being taken seriously with what I do. Um, and so I feel like showcasing, there There are a lot of us that exist. There are a lot of very successful, accomplished women with doctorates out there in the brass world and otherwise. And so for me, putting ourselves out there on a platform to not say that we're the only ones that exist, but like, hey, this this exists and it's good quality, just as good as anybody else. Like, check it out. It does exist. That was really important to me. And to be a part of that is just so special to me. Yeah, I would say too, um, I had strong, you know, female role models, but also the more that I talked to other female breast musicians, the more I realized like one of the reasons I'm successful is because I was very lucky not to have um, really bad experiences and not to have as much of that um, sort of yeah, backlash. I think the thing that has most often happened to me is this weird opposite kind of compliment thing where when you, uh, you know, when I show up with the tuba, um, I think sometimes the expectations would immediately go down and then I would exceed those expectations and I would get a lot of this kind of like, oh, look at you, you know, yeah, good job, that sort of thing. So, and I've talked to other female tuba players about that as well as so I, I feel like, you know, trying to do this at the highest level and the representation of that online and everything um, is important because uh, we've already talked to people who are at least, um, you know, inspired by that. And we have other, you know, female breast groups that we look up to who we've been inspired by. So it's a powerful thing to be a part of that lineage. It's really interesting coming from my perspective, because I'm a harpist, most people I know are women who play the harp. So I do wonder sort of if there are some challenges that they face as well, playing a traditionally, and I hate using this term, but quote unquote feminine instrument. So oh, I, I totally understand what you're saying. And I think we, you know, I ask this every semester in my low brass techniques class, I ask people to say their story of how they came to play their instrument. And again, one of the things that happened to me was I walked into that instrument petting zoo and I just picked out the biggest, shiniest thing that I could find and nobody told me no. <laughs> and that's a huge part of the reason why I'm here today. Musician wellness has become an increasingly important part of young musicians training as our career trajectories constantly evolve. The last two years is like the epitome of that. With that in mind, what advice do you wish you had been given when you were in college with regards to wellness? I didn't receive too much specific instruction about it, but again, I do feel like I had encouraging teachers. And one of my projects is um, a blog and I do a presentation about mindfulness in the practice room. And a lot of the things that I know now are things that I wish I could have, you know, told my younger self yet at the same time, it's probably why I can be successful as a teacher because I've gone through a lot of those challenges. So my um, 
my advice to my younger self would be to sort of, first of all, not have such a narrow minded view of what success is either on the instrument or in, um, in the career realm and to essentially, you know, find a way to be process oriented in the practice room, but product oriented on the stage, just, you know, going for that sound above all and being in the moment. It's an easy thing to say it would have taken a lot of instruction for my younger self to even conceptualize that. But that's, um, that's probably what I needed to hear and eventually did hear. My biggest thing for advice, if I were going to talk to myself, and I, I talk to my students about this kind of stuff all the time. Um, firstly, it's so easy when you're in school to forget that you chose to do this for a living and that you chose it because you love it. And it's so easy to forget that when you're like, okay, be here, be here, do this, do this. And it's all stuff that you're being told to do. Not like, I think about, I, I started trumpet my sophomore year of high school, so I can remember everything, which is fantastic. And I remember going home each day and just sitting on my bed and playing and playing out of the Arbins of all things. I was just testing myself, seeing what I could play. I know Stephanie's like, why are you doing that? <laughs> um, but I, I loved it so much. And then um, through my undergrad, I, I mean, I still loved it, but I found that when, when I got into the nitty gritty, the really hard scales, the really hard solos, things like that, that started to fade a little bit. Um, until I reminded myself that that's, that's why I'm here. And the other thing is um, during that same time, and this is something that I think is, is kind of a problem in, in higher academia, um, it's not weak to take a break. It's not weak to not have the horn on your face all the time. It's not weak to focus on your mental health. Um, so many people don't treat people seriously because they're like, I, I have to take a day off. Oh, if you take a day off, you're going to get worse. Like, maybe you'll get worse if the horn is on your face that next day because you're stressing yourself out and you're going to be working on bad habits the, all t the whole time and making those what your strongest habits are instead of taking a break, taking some time for your mind and for your physical body. Um, yeah, that's just something that uh, I wish that I would have realized that sooner than like four years ago, <laughs> telling myself that that was okay. Oh, absolutely. The art of saying no is so hard for musicians. And I, I have the have the similar thing. Now I do think with brass instruments, you have a very unique thing of you, if you overplay, you hurt yourself. Like if I overplay on the half, of course I hurt myself as well, but it's not quite the same thing as using my arms versus using your face to play something. So yeah, sort of practicing wisely, knowing when a gig isn't going to be the best thing for you to do. It's not, yeah, I think that's a huge, huge thing that we need to make sure our students know so that they're still practicing hard. They're still going after the things they want to do, but you have to make sure that they're also looking after themselves so they don't burn out. And the, the hard thing about that is like all the peer pressure that goes along with it. You know, through all of my degrees, there was always somebody who was looking at you. And if you weren't working, I, I would go as far as to say harder than they are. They were looking down at you as less or saying something or they, everybody's always saying something. So it's just because you don't see somebody working doesn't mean they're not. Now, I mean, obviously that speaks for itself. Once you show up to rehearsal, if you don't know your part, that's something different. But um, if just because you're not seeing it doesn't mean that that person's not, not doing it. Yes. And it's, 
the peer pressure thing, I tell you what, positive peer pressure is a good thing, but that negative stuff needs to go. <laughs> yeah, I think too, actually, I would give students today a lot of credit because I do feel like it's different. Um, like my students, I think, I think I might have told um, the quintet this in a Zoom sometime, but like I, I have my students, you know, submit their schedule at the beginning of the semester so that I can, you know, schedule their lessons. And one of my students had scheduled in a little block of time every day that said me time. And I was like, okay, <laughs> good. I will, I will not schedule your lesson during me time. <laughs> Um, but I thought that was awesome. And, um, so I do, I definitely have hope, but I think some of us have had those, those experiences. I would say maybe trumpet players more than tuba players have had the experiences you're talking about of, of your pressure, but for all brass, like what we're doing is athletic and the athletic world figured this out long ago and had, you know, mental health coaches and all that stuff. And we're just still back here, like trying to get on board with that, but we could take a real lesson from that as well. As a group, you are associated with Rising Tide Music Press, which focuses on presenting BBIA, so that is Black, Brown, Indigenous, and Asian musicians in their first decade of professional work and development. How did you start working with this publishing house and how does this collaboration work? So I guess we were sort of connected to them. Um, we were, we know the people who were working for um, Rising Tide at that time, Alyssa and and Ashley Killam is kind of a friend of uh, a couple people in the group who was working with Rising Tide. And we started speaking with her because we were looking for, um, we were getting off the ground. And I think somewhere in the conversations, they were doing, a, you know, some fundraisers and we decided to do a virtual fundraiser with them. So it started as kind of an online thing. And then from there, it morphed from an online fundraiser to us becoming an ensemble in residence. So the way that we're looking at it is as essentially for brass, for the brass side of things, being a house band for them. So we they, there are quintets on the website, but there are also just brass pieces uh, that are not, um, not quintets, solo duo pieces. So we're looking at those as well. Uh, so it's been really fun for us because We've done a couple of composer workshops where we meet on Zoom with composers. And that's actually um, one of the most rewarding things we've done so far, just talking with composers and them asking us questions. Is this possible? What does this sound like? Jacqueline and Carrie bring out all their awesome mutes and play them and they can listen to them. Um, and so for my side of it, it's been a really cool way to feel like I mean, we're definitely helping them out, but we're we're getting a really cool collaboration. And we're now at the point where the quintets that we're going to record, we've had a little bit of input to, oh, you know what? We can't have the trumpet on the face for three straight minutes. Let's have some rest here and there or whatever. Um, and uh, and hopefully made those pieces a little bit um a little bit more dialed in for brass quintet playing and hopefully also kind of um, given those composers a better direction for brass quintet uh, writing in general. So I think it's been a very mutual sort of um, beneficial relationship so far, but it's, it's been a lot of fun. Yeah. It's, um, it's fun to see the, the collaboration between us and the actual composers too. Um, sometimes 
I don't know, um, a lot of composers will just, you know, write and then put it off into the world and this is that and I'm a composer and okay. But they're actually asking for feedback on it and it's a collaboration and we get to give and take. We're learning from them, they're learning from us and it's it's something that I haven't seen before and I mean, I mean, I haven't seen everything obviously, but I think it's something really, really great, this, this kind of two-sided collaboration process to create something that is truly phenomenal. Why is this type of foundation important, especially to traditionally marginalized musicians in their early career stages? I think it's kind of the same thing with visibility. It's like so many phenomenal composers of color exist and the fact that they're not being showcased as much isn't because of lack of them or lack of their quality of work. It's just lack of, of light to it. So um, I think this is so important because it's it's kind of along the same lines for us. It's like there are phenomenal um, women musicians and brass players everywhere. There are phenomenal um, people of color who compose phenomenal works all over the place. And this is just kind of a platform for some of the younger ones, especially to be showcased and have a, a platform to let their voices be heard as well. Yes. And when we play concerts and, you know, play this music, I, I know I feel strongly about this as a, as a female musician is, you know, we're not playing them for the sake of the novelty of playing them. We're not putting them in kind of like sequestering them onto a program by themselves where we're mixing them together with uh, all of the music that we think is worthy of being played and that we want to play and are excited to play so I think part of it is like just being a platform to bring that music out into the world and then whatever happens happens but uh we're also you know we're really enjoying playing this music and um and we're getting a great response to it as well, because I think people are hungry to hear new brass music. Yeah, that's that's one of the big things for me. It's, it's kind of the trend of the semester for me, the phrase, that's the way it's always been done, or that's the music that's always been played. Um, like brass quintets, I when I was in school, I was assigned the same ones over and over in completely different schools, completely different quintets. You have your standard literature. And I mean, it's standard for a reason, but why can't there be new standards? Why can't it be a new piece of music and still be considered something that is standard literature if it exhibits the same elements that those that have been standard for a while exhibit? Yeah, I recently had this experience because you saw we did a virtual coaching with our brass quintet here at UNI, and they were they were playing um, Ewald, which is a standard, and a um, couple other things that they that individual players had brought to the group. But they asked me for some new music ideas, and I gave them a couple of pieces that Calypsis had recorded and um, they performed them. And I told them after the concert, you know, I, I told Lauren Bernofsky that you were playing her piece and, and she wanted to listen to it. And then she listened to it. And then she sent them like some positive feedback and the look on their faces was just like, this is a living person who watched my live stream. It was just like, you know, um, head exploding kind of emoji kind of faces. So I think it was, it's been really great as an educator too, to like, to show that there is no, I mean, everyone can be doing this. And most composers that we've worked with are like, yes, please play my music. And now that quintet is on Lauren Bernofsky's website as someone who's played her music. So I think it's also um, beneficial down the line to students as well.
This is my favorite question to ask. What is the strangest request or gig you've ever done? Now, this can be as Calypsis or personally, but what is the strangest gig you've ever done? I was invited to play as a tuba euphonium quartet for a parade. Uh, for the opening of an SPCA um, animal shelter. And when we showed up for the parade, uh, they put us on the back of like a wrecker flatbed truck and proceeded to drive us through a very industrial section of Richmond, Virginia, where I lived. Um, There were no people. It was just us playing patriotic tunes, went over a pothole, split my lip with my tooth. I'm now bleeding onto my white shirt. And that was when we pulled into the parking lot of the SPCA for the finale of our fake parade. Um, so that, that was one of my, one of my better ones. <laughs> it was a, a parade with no participants and I, I didn't even really get to play in the, the finale of it. Well, I have one that actually involves harp. Um, so- oh no. <laughs> <laughs> so I was invited to play a gig. It was going to be a world premiere of a piece and it was for two trumpets and three harps, which was kind of an interesting arrangement of things. And, um, it was kind of like, stage two trumpets on one side three harps on the other and so we rehearsed it it was great you know it's a little bit more modern music cool awesome show up to the gig and um it turns out that it's it's kind of like um like a a ceremony and um he gave us all these fake candles like candles and at the very end of the piece we all had to lift them up together and they're electric candles. So we had to turn them off and the whole room went black and he's like wearing a hood and it, it was super weird. Um, so that is the weirdest gig that I have ever played. The piece was kind of cool though. Um, just the, he didn't tell us about the weird part at the end. Oh and God, um, it sounds yeah. like sacrificing something with these little electric. Oh my God. It felt like it. Oh, <laughs> wow. Okay. Wow. Somehow we have come to the end of this really delightful podcast. We have been joined by Stephanie and Jacqueline, who are two of the members from Calypsis Brass. All of their information will be down in the show notes. So I thoroughly recommend that you check them out and watch all of their awesome content and listen to their brilliant recordings. And we look forward to seeing you in two weeks. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Soundweavers podcast. If you enjoyed our show, please subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and most other major podcast platforms. We hope that you'll visit us at www.soundweaverscast.com, follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Soundweaverscast, and on Twitter at SWChambercast, where you'll get episodes as soon as they drop, show notes, and regular updates. This podcast is hosted by Rosetta Moore and engineered by Blair Kerner. I'm your producer, Adam Paul Cordell. Our theme music was composed by Evan Henry and recorded by the Soundweavers team. The music you heard in today's podcast was composed by Kataj Kopli and performed by Calypsis Brass. 
On behalf of the Soundweavers cast, see you in two weeks. Thank you.